Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. We're live. It's 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 p.m. UTC, Universal Coordinated Time. It's value after hours. What's happening, fellas? Still in a closet last week. (laughs) Coming out next week. Going home. Yeah, that's great. How about you, JT? Good long weekend. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, are there weekends anymore? I don't really know the difference between. I guess the markets closed. That's the only. That's how you tell. Though. That's how you can tell. Okay. If the markets you're not closed. Like Brady Brown, where uh, no one can tell if the markets open when you're working. Come what, on, Jake. What 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 a Tweety Brown do? No, they just that was uh, uh I think it was Klarman was describing them, and they said he said that. They say that you can't tell if the market's open around there. I would say the same around this office. <laughs> what, 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 so Shout out to, the, to my boys over at Tweety Brown, my man Fred and uh, Jay Hill. If you're if you're two of the ten, hello. Yeah, I had a good interview with the uh, Tweety guys. I got five of the seven partners, so it was fun. I was a little bit nervous for that one, honestly. I listened to that one. Good Bob guys. Bob Wyckoff over there. Yeah. What's up? They're good people. I'm trying to get Cliff on. I've been I've been pestering him in the DMs. He kind of he sent me uh, to uh, to the uh, marketing team, but he said he could override them. So fingers crossed. He could override mm. them, dude. Don't you don't want this? Well, I don't know if, if that's he... a good thing or a bad thing. But I said that he'd I get he'd either. get a very sympathetic hearing from from me on value. Okay, that's good. If we could confine the conversation to the last three papers that he's written and the paper that his colleagues wrote, we'll be money good. If we get I into momentum, I don't know what live. we're going to talk about. I hope he doesn't kill himself. Nah. Like, dude, hypertension is an issue with this COVID stuff. Cliff needs to calm down sometimes on the Twitter machine. Like, you've won the battle. Walk away. Yeah, he did win that battle, I think, comprehensively. I'm on Team Cliff, so pirate victory there. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna log off of this and I'm gonna be blocked from Taleb. Yeah, he, he, you think he's he think he's like Google searching for COVID and coronavirus? Oh, I demonetized the podcast. <laughs> There's that seven dollars we're never gonna get back. Ouch, seven. You you holding something from us? Because I <laughs> thought it was like a buck twenty. <laughs> I think we're at. I think we get. Yeah. It was like a hundred bucks for the last twenty-eight days, something like that. It's growing, gee, it's growing quickly. I like how I like how people are like, yeah, niche audiences are really you can monetize them. Then I think about this podcast. No, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where are the riches in the niches? Isn't that the? Saying? That's right. Yeah, shout out to Scuttleburb. Who's? Uh, is it? Is it me? Am I doing the intro? I think so. Welcome to Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlisle. I'm joined by my co-host Jake Taylor and Bill Brewster. Jake, what's your topic this week? I've got a double helping of veggies this week, (laughs) uh, and we're going to be talking about Slack and systems. I love it. What about you, Brew? What you got on? 
I don't know. In honor of the vaccine, I sort of want to go YOLO on everything travel-related, but I'm probably just going to rub my nose and how painful it was to uh, watch RH rip. Are you in it? Are you not in it? I'm not in it. I guess we're going to find out in a moment. And we're going to talk about it, and it makes me a little sad, but also I think I did the right thing. I want to talk about the difference between value and growth. Every time I talk about it, somebody comes in and says... I've read Warren Buffett's letter. Buffett says there's no difference. Growth is a component of value. I do understand that. I want to talk about why I distinguish between the two and uh, why you should at least be aware of the reason for the distinction. Uh, coming up right after this, you want to go, Brew? You want to start off with your... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can. Hang on, wait, real quick. Just to, to follow up on yours, are we going to rename these this week? Are we gonna after this week? All in due time. Well, we can we can talk about that. Yes. So first off, let's start out with my Tesla story that I had to take down from Twitter. Thank you to Tesla Q. You all are crazy. Uh, My grandma, very nice lady. My my kids are playing tennis across the street from her, and she is not, you know, as able to walk as she once was. So she wanted to drive over to watch. And she was pulling the Tesla out of the garage and, I guess, started with the rear bumper, didn't totally realize that she was hitting the the garage and pressed down on the gas a little bit, all the way to the front driver's side door, the side of the garage, sort of raked along the car. And then I think at some point she got a little bit, um, I don't know, confused, worried, whatever, and she cut the car to the other side and with the front right, hit another part of the garage so long story short nan i hope you're not listening she'd be embarrassed (laughs) that i'm telling this i don't think she listens hopefully she's one of the 10 though anyway uh i call up insurance and i'm like hey uh this is what happened um and we got this quote you know i'd like to process this anyway long story short the quote to to fix the cosmetic damage this is cosmetic right she hit a garage driving at slow speed 25 grand of damage it's a few panels right how many panels back uh, well i mean it was most it was most of the driver's side and the front right quarter panel so i mean you know it was it's not a it's not nothing to fix like don't get me wrong but you're not talking about structural stuff you know it's all like cosmetic uh anyway Kelly Blue Book value on the car was thirty one grand. She was going to try to pay out of pocket because she didn't want it on her insurance. And I was like, no, this does not make any sense. And uh, the agreed upon value was forty three grand. So that's what she's going to get from the uh, from the insurance company. To the person that may be listening that accused me of insurance fraud, you are a moron, sir. It's not insurance fraud. It's how insurance works. Next. So let's are there just any, uh, sorry. Tax credits you can get EV tax credits to get a repair job. <laughs> I don't think they're a repair job, but oh, okay. she's going to get another one. She's very excited. Uh, we're getting another Model 3, the smaller version, so that she can tool around in that. But it's amazing how much that costs to fix uh, on something that really doesn't feel like it should cost that much. Montana Skeptic tweeted that out, and that's when my Twitter feed went from, oh, this is sort of a funny, cute story, to I am going into the vortex of Tesla Q hell. And I deleted it. So, which side were you? Uh, ca- like, what were you? What side were you cast on? Are you Tesla Q or are you Tesla, whatever that is, no, Tesla? No, no. So, like, I, I mean, I interact with Charlie Grant occasionally, 
Mm-hmm. You know, Charlie is a great guy. If you're listening, what's up, Charlie? Uh, he's one of the he's ten. obviously one of the ten. So is his dad. I, you know, Jim. I don't know. Jim Maybe. comes in here I for the bear so. porn. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, so Charlie retweeted it, and he he sent me a DM. He's like, "Sorry to make you go viral," and it was sort of funny. Like, I mean, I shared it because I thought that the punchline of my joke was sort of funny. But then one skeptic got in. Uh, his followers are a little bit. I don't. They're looking for meat a little <laughs> bit too much, and I wasn't trying to be their their dinner. You know, I'm just trying to share like a story from my life. So basically, uh, can I just let's just so what has happened is your grandma has backed out of the garage and it's dinged up some side panels. Yeah, super slow. And right? then I mean, I think she just got a little bit nervous, heard something scratching, you know, hit the gas. That thing does have a ton of torque. Uh, it was a 2014 Model S, you know, and just started raking against the garage. So, but then they've they've treated the car as if it's totaled. It is totaled. The car is. T- what, what does that? What does that mean? What does totaled mean? Like from an insurance perspective, as in it's just cheap. It's too expensive to fix. It will just get you a new one. Or yeah, it's not drivable. It Co- no, they're going to send it to Copart, who's going to sell it as a salvage car. So yeah. you know, my dad like wants to buy it out of the. He 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 got the auction lot number. He's going to be there bidding on the car to try to you know fix it. But I mean, it goes to auction, and then somebody that has a body shop or something or thinks they can fix it will fix it. So but, well, I mean, what's the broader? It's that easy. What's the broader takeaway for Tesla? What's the what? What do you deduce from that? Well, I th- what Montana skeptics' point was is how if this is if this is the outcome from a fairly small incident like how are these things insurable down the road and i do think that's a legitimate question to ask long term they've had some trouble insuring the cars they've had some trouble insuring the board too but let's just talk about the cars for a moment <laughs> oh, oh, oh we got jokes early i like it yeah i don't know i mean uh you know it pulls forward some demand in the short term but if you can't get insurance for the car it becomes a problem down the road does Tesla make money out of that? Because they get another car being bought from them, right? That's the insurance company's issue, not Tesla's. Yeah, well, it's it's Tesla's issue when your total cost of ownership goes up so much because your insurance that then you there isn't demand for your product. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that's, that's yeah. the one thing that made me a little bit nervous. I mean, this really, if I even showed you the pictures, you guys would be like, there's no way that car is totaled. But it was. Who makes the, the determination, guy, he, Tesla or, or oh, it was a Tesla certified repair shop that does that? Uh, so it's a Tesla certified repair shop. So that's an independent yeah, so third party, Tesla. right? The insurance Correct. company makes the total decision or not. Correct, yeah. she She's insured through Chubb. I contacted Chubb. Chubb knows the repair shop. They talked. And then the Chubb... Uh, whatever adjuster or whatever called me up and he's like are you sitting down and i said why and he's like uh the car's totaled I'm like what the hell what's your job i'm like, a yeah, chub adjuster yeah. <laughs> phrasing that's right i don't know that i need to be sitting down for this bro but whatever um anyway it was an interesting story uh so on the rh hand or note or whatever i'm trying to say I have enjoyed watching it rip from roughly... Restoration hardware for everyone, by the way. Yeah. 
uh, Sorry, from, keep going. from like 80 to 210 or something this morning based on no news. I guess the credit card data was somewhat good. Uh, the theory that people are spending some money on their house might actually be playing out. But Yeah, Home Depot uh, and uh, a few of those kind of stocks have had a good period. They've been absolutely chock-a-block through the whole uh, lockdown and they've done well. So RH is sort of participating in that a little bit. Is that the theory? People yeah, are nesting. So. What's up? People are nesting. Yeah, I think. And I mean, I, I think it's been shown by now that Americans aren't very good at saving. So if you give them a bunch of money, they're going to spend <laughs> I guess it. it's where it goes, uh, right? Yeah, because it's, it's getting taken away from travel right now, you know, and going into their home, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a couple interesting things. One... I am not sure whether or not selling it was the right or the wrong decision. I mean, I bought it fairly quick into the sell-off. Uh, my cost basis was like 120 bucks a share by the time that I was you know, done accumulating it. I got out at roughly even after my views on sort of the economy and the virus and everything had changed. Uh, I think one thing that I probably should have done is, and this is all hindsight speaking, but maybe like let it settle in a little bit more about what I thought would actually be the economic consequences of the virus and the layoffs and all that stuff before I maybe bought a luxury furniture retailer. Um, my my thought was, I think people have this wrong. I think people are going to spend in their house. Um, that may that I may have been right initially. I, I wasn't able to sit with the risk, so I don't deserve the return. But um, We'll see whether or not this, you know, whether or not the market's wrong or whether or not I was right. Uh, but, you know, looking at stock price in between a decision and the outcome can really, like, f make you not feel great about the decision. And it's still, I, I won't know for two years, right, whether or not it was the right idea. Because a lot of what I was thinking is not, oh, what's going to happen in April and May? Like, I'm, I'm more concerned about December, January, February, next year, you know, that kind of thing than I am right now. So, we'll see. Yeah, isn't that one of the hard things about this game is that the you'd almost be better served if you could somehow get the pricing of data data pricing uh, or pricing data, I should say, uh, when on different intervals than like every second by second. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like well, you, you got you got to do that yourself, right? But I yeah. do like to peek. But how hard is it to keep from like wanting to look at it and just see what's happening and like, oh, did I make a good decision or not? Where if I could, if you could just say like, all right, put this in a time capsule and two years from now, remind me to go back and look what the price was and see what it did. And then I'm going to ignore it otherwise. Like, I don't want to know. Yes. I think you would probably learn a lot more and have a lot less heartache. This is what Guy Spears book told me to do, but I hate myself. So I check. <laughs> I think Taleb yeah. said that as well. The, the the lower your frequency of checking, the more likely you are to have a positive outcome when you check. And there's a point, I forget where it is, but probably daily where if you're checking, you're more likely to be down than up. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And if nothing else, you just like, I mean, I'm talking to myself now. You're introducing emotional pain where it doesn't really need to be. And there's probably better and higher uses of time. Um Taleb's argument, if I understand correctly, is actually the loss aversion angle of it. So even if it's like half the time, if you're up 51% of the time and down 49% of the time, a year from now over a, you know enough in, you're going to be winning. 
so you would only notice winning. But if you're checking every single day, your your feeling of loss stacks up at twice the rate as the feeling of gain, so it makes it that much harder. What if you're a value guy and you want to perform seven days out of ten? How's that feel? Better than seven out of seven. <laughs> you need those other three days to be really strong. Then. That's, that's Ironically, I don't mind like being down on a position. That doesn't bother me that much. Uh, I, I do <laughs> fundamentally think that uh, RH, I mean, I believe in their future. I, I was nervous and remain nervous about the amount of financial and operating leverage given sort of their debt maturities and can't beat yourself up about it go on your process yeah no i i dig i dig it's just you know it's not fun to watch something and be ready and then have the opportunity come and then not have the guts to hold it i guess um you ever think about rip changing the i wonder if you're right changing the bet from like a binary on or off to like a sizing question or even like an instrument question change it from equity to options leaps or whatever it was never a big one in my i mean the max percentage that i ever made it was like two anyway so it wasn't it wasn't like a big bet but the other thing is i've got enough leverage in my portfolio as it is i don't really need that uh but it just sucks you know so we'll see hopefully it comes back down and then i'll be ready to swing or they go bankrupt and i say see i was right see how smart i am (laughs) yeah that's right anyway the emotional toll of the game toby why don't you go next uh in the course of doing that last little uh bit of research that i did uh my state of value address uh part of that is looking at you know alternatives that you have so value defined in that paper is the value decile that's the 10 percent that is cheapest on any given simple price ratio and then I looked at a combination of those price ratios and to find, you know, what does the, if you don't believe in price to earnings or price to cash flow or enterprise value to EBIT, EBITDA, whatever, what do they all say together to give you a rough idea? And then just, I also acknowledged in that paper and I, I like the way Cliff did it actually. Cliff gave me the idea for it. I didn't put my own model in, but Cliff did in his paper. And the, the idea is basically that when you apply, so I, I don't just use price ratios, just so everybody's clear on that. I also look at balance sheet health, risk of financial distress, fraud, earnings manipulation, and a variety of other things that I don't always talk about. But in, in, including in there is you know share buybacks, on the long side, on the on the short side. Basically, it's an inversion of that process, uh, negative free cash flow, so on. When you add all of those things in. The spread looks a lot wider than it normally does. And the spread that I'm talking about is between the most overvalued and the most undervalued, but included in the most overvalued stuff I don't want to own because it's it's a junky balance sheet. It's negative free cash flow. On the long side, it's a good balance sheet. It's positive free cash flow. It's buying back stock. Shorts are issuing stock for the most part. Any of those things by themselves is a pretty good distinguisher between the cheap and the expensive. Having said that, you still go through these periods of time where... The expensive leg, the growth, the glamour, however you want to describe it, we might have to come up with another name for it. But I think glamour is a pretty good description of what it is because it's basically the narrative has wildly diverged from what the financial statements are telling you. 
the financial statements, uh, if you looked at them, they're almost uninvestable. Well, they are. They're uninvestable, these stocks. They're shorts. But they still go up a lot year after year after year, often because the top line is so good. But the top line growing and none of that falling to the bottom line or the company having to keep on financing, sometimes those things do turn into great businesses, but it's much, much rarer than everybody thinks. So I just make a distinction. And I know in the, in the, in the literature, the distinction is between growth and value and the distinction is the price that you pay for the assets so value tends to pay lower i mean much much lower multiples in fact they tend to often that value basket is the price is less than the uh the flow so you're paying like you're paying less than one times earnings or less than one times book or much less than one times book and on the long side you're paying multiples of those things so there are markets where that long side works. We've been through one recently for the last sort of five years particularly where the long side has worked really well. But you have to realize that that is an unusual thing. Now, Buffett says value, uh, the growth is a component of value, which is absolutely true if you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis. But when, you, when you're thinking about these things, you should think about the amount of weight that is in the terminal value versus the amount of weight that's in the foreseeable years that you're discounting back. If you find that you've got an enormous amount of weight in your terminal value, you've got a lot of work to do to prove that up. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying recognize the bet that you're making. So when I do these things, I don't like to have a lot of weight in the terminal value. I like really near-term cash flows because I think that they're much, much more achievable. When I test it over the full data set, you get good returns. Now, the argument is that something has changed over the last five or 10 years. You've got so good at screening. Uh, everybody knows what these companies are. Everybody's hunting for these undervalued companies. You're better off, uh, paradoxically, hunting for them in the most overvalued because nobody's looking there for longs. And so that seems to have been a better bet. But I, I make a distinction between the two, just so everybody knows what style of value investor I am and what I am doing when I'm discussing these things. And it's, it's not confusing at all. It, you don't have to be confused about this stuff. And you don't have to remind me about Buffett's quote. I, I've read Buffett's letters a few times. I've written about them a few times too. So I don't need a, a, a lesson every time. Wait, do you understand that growth and value are joined at the hip? <laughs> I've never heard that expression. Can you, what does that mean? Okay, well, I just, I wanted to sort of maybe say it a different way, you know? It's they're a component of each other. Yeah. No, I think I think what you're saying makes uh, I mean, it's a ton of sense. It's a shame that uh, the, the to put it in longer terms, the two terms cabbage people's minds. Right. And then they just people start shouting past each other. Um, I, I think that, you know, with with what we've just been through. Uh, there's it has illuminated some of the risk to the near-term cash flow. But I also think you have to sort of understand that this is a greater than three standard deviation event at a minimum. Like, I don't know how many standard deviations it is, but uh, it, we're definitely not living in the normal. So I don't know that you can go underwrite, you know, what would this business look like at zero revenues for however long um, to stress the near-term cash flow. But yeah, I mean, the, the terminal value you introduce a ton of interest rate risk into your into your bet too um so it's as you said know your bet i'm not i don't know which one is right or wrong i just think people that can't articulate what the bet is are the ones that are going to ultimately hold the bag 
So what are some good names then what we can use to end this like argument that it's sort of academic versus practitioner in a way of you know yeah. value growth? Well, I, say, I always say it's a good I example of says law. Glamour's a glamour's a winner there, right? Like we have that one. And I use glamour. I don't use growth. I I yeah. I, th- I think for the most part I try and use glamour because I'm trying to describe. I'm not trying to describe high growth companies. There's nothing wrong with owning high growth companies, just as long as you recognise the risks to owning high growth companies. That they tend, you know, you got to look at the, uh, you look at the statistical tables. You got to look at how likely it is that they can sustain that growth rate. Some of them do. What's that law? It, it's pretty funny. Say, Sayers law. Yeah. That one. The intensity of the argument is inversely proportionate to the uh, to the size of the stakes. The lower the stakes, the more intense the argument. It's an academic kind of yeah. thing. I, I don't care. I know what I'm doing, and I what I'm I'm describing mine as value. So if if uh, if somebody else wants to describe it a different way, then be my guest. But I, I'm a value investor. The thing that I found I'm a deep value investor. In- well, the thing that I found interesting, like from talking to you, I didn't know that your second, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in your portfolio, the second strongest factor is quality. Right. And that's just because I, I like everything, you know, I, my, my, my objection is just to return on invested capital, just because it tends to be highly mean reverting. But I like cash flows on cash flows, are like balance sheet cash flow, like buying back stock, all of the indicia of quality, I agree with. Of course, you want to own that stuff. I actually, you know, if you're going to ask about things that should be joined at the hip, I think quality and growth, as quality and value are joined at the hip. I don't see how you get value without quality. You, you got something that's cheap on, on all of its ratios. Who cares? I want something that I want to own cheap on those ratios. That's, that to me is the definition of kind of value investing. Something that you do want to own at a low price. I wonder if there is a another kind of Z axis to this to help uh, maybe us figure this out. Like, what about sort of like one is a version of looking backwards? That would be the kind of more academic value and growth, quote unquote. And then one is kind of more looking forward. I'm making projections about the future. I wonder if we can come up with a smart way to rename them based on the fact that there's sort of time differences. I'm still making a prediction about the future though. Like I am saying, I think that these things, I think there's going to be mean reversion. Although that OSAM paper that I put in the, I was surprised by that when that came out. Um, that was a new analysis. That's in factors from scratch. The OSAM paper factors from scratch. What they showed is that the earnings tend to deteriorate over the holding period for value stocks. And that's been true sort of over the full data set. I was a little surprised by that because the way that the data is usually analyzed, it looks like the portfolio is getting cheaper and cheaper. And the reason that has been that people have ascribed to that, including me, is mean reversion in the underlying earnings. But it turns out that that's not right. I don't know if that's exactly what's happening in my portfolios because I tend to own things, you know, I own Berkshire, I own Markel, I own Schwab, like they're all growing. They're all going to be bigger. The rate of growth across my portfolio is 11% top line. Sorry, sorry, let me... Let me be clear. 5% top line, 11% bottom line because they tend to buy back a lot of stock. So there's there's growth in the portfolios, but I, I'm sort of, I'm not buying on the basis of that growth. I'm assuming there's going to be some growth and I think it's a bonus. And over five years, that's very material growth. But in the short term, who knows? I just think they're mispriced. I think they're below market and they're, they're trading below market and they're worth more. I'm all for a different name for it, but I... I don't think there's a good one. I think deep value versus sort of franchise value or Buffett style value is a, is a pretty good distinction. 
but we're going to we're going to we're going to cross over sometimes too. I mean, Apple was in my screens when Buffett bought it. Berkshire's in my screens. I was surprised that he didn't buy it this time around, but I guess he's got other other things not going over, on. <clears throat> it's not over. I mean, look, if he has changed his mind on what he thinks the potential path of outcomes are are like he's got a shot right now yeah. to buy it at not that much higher. That's than, right. I mean, people have fully thrown in the towel on Buffett, which astonishing. You know, I mean, even I did, according to some people. <laughs> I will let those people know that my new money has been going into Berkshire over everything else. So I am not. You probably traded it well. Did you sell it at the top and buy it back at the low? No, no. But if I did, I'd start a newsletter and tell everyone I did. <laughs> oh, zinger. <laughs> Uh, next sacrifice a little integrity for dollars today <laughs> do, do you have do you have something that you want to say Bill? no i think i'll leave that for offline and private conversations <laughs> i would just say that uh it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and a minute to tear it down that's a good point and a, a mailing list to tear it down <laughs> that's right <laughs> and and i would be even more cautious about doing something like that if I built my lifetime of reputation around a group of people that agreed with that concept. This is That's all very weird. oblique. People are listening confused as hell right now. No, I they doubt know. they are. <laughs> <laughs> all right, JT, my TED Talk's over. Let's, oh, let's eat the veggies. Let's get to the good part. All right, so... Hat tip, first of all, to uh, Baker Street Partners for sending this uh, this paper over to me. And it's it's called Studies on Slack, and it was uh, by Scott Alexander on the Slate Star Codex website. So I want you to imagine there's this planet that has all these animals on it that none of them can see. Uh, and they're in this fierce competition. Uh, you could almost imagine, like, Pandora from Avatar. You know, it's just much more comp competitive than even Earth. Now, obviously it would be a huge advantage if one of the animals could evolve an eye, but it takes some metabolic energy and it's actually a cost to get that eye evolved, right? They're at a disadvantage. So when the co competition is crazy high, there's not enough room for an eye to evolve, even though it over a longer period of time would be very, very advantageous. So, uh, the fact that you need a little bit of slack, basically, um, is is a, a very interesting concept that I'm going to apply to some other places. So one way to think about this, that in evolutionary biology, they call it um, adaptive fitness landscapes. And landscape is really the, the operative word here. So imagine that you're standing and you pour a bucket of water out in, and it's at a puddle in your at your feet. Now, water wants to go to the lowest level that it can, right, because of gravity. Now, if you could imagine that just up over the hill from you, there's a crevice that's super deep, but the water can never quite get up over the hill and get down into that crevice because the gravity, the competition is so strong. Well, if you relax gravity a little bit, the water can find its way up and over the hill and find a much, much more a happier place to be. Uh, and yeah, hopefully you can kind of see the, the, the interplay there between competition and and slack that can allow a, a species or in this case water to find the landscape uh, and find its way over it. Okay. So a couple of things, the uh, I, number one, isn't this like fascinating that you, 
we need both competition and slack to sort of find the optimal way. Like this is like out of the Tao Te Ching type of thing. Like it's very yin and yang, right? Um, so the first thing to think about um, would be think about the stock market as uh, especially the more original version of the stock market, which was like to actually raise capital and not just a secondary market for people to, to exchange uh, shares of ownership. But you are taking if you think about money as sort of like a storage of time, you were taking other people's slack time and reallocating it to others who were going to then use it to, to maybe build something even bigger. Like they were, you were giving them a chance to climb from that little puddle over the hill and into a, a much bigger uh, potential outcome. Um, so like slack savings turning into an investment, um, uh, you know, if everyone's living hand to mouth, it's very hard to make any kind of progress, right? If we're all in just dire competition, uh, we can't find that next level. So um, another thing to think about, like with the economy, when I think about like, we had a, call it a 4% GDP contraction in 2008. Now any system in my mind that couldn't handle a 4% change seems kind of boggles my mind like you would think if if four percent of the squirrels in the forest disappeared would anyone notice like would it be would it go into history books as like this amazing thing that we should all study it makes me wonder about how tightly we run all of our systems so like what is the what's the opposite of slack why do you hate squirrels well whatever animal you want to make it but what's the, what's the opposite of slack i mean we run it pretty tight uh, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I don't know that we don't derive enough benefit to justify that, though, uh, at least in normal times. But, uh, you know, if I was arguing the other side, I'd say, well, that's true if you socialize the losses, you anti-capitalist pig. Yeah, it's like overclocking or something, right? Overdrive. It's, it's, it's leverage. Leverage. That's the opposite of slack. So we run our system at this way that's like, probably over leveraged where you would think a 4% change would not lead to such crazy outcomes. So when I think about, <clears throat> when you think about like all of us have in our heads, this, this list of our wants and needs at a given time, and that can change based on the world around us. So like COVID has been a pretty good example of that. Like all of a sudden we don't want to travel as much, but we do want to watch more Netflix or whatever. Like all of our lives have, have had some pretty drastic drastic shifts relative to normal times. Bill, you look like you want to jump I, on. I don't know that people don't want to travel. I, th I I'm I would push back on that just a little, but well, that, uh, I agree that they are precluded from traveling right now and choosing not to uh, for okay. the time being. What uh, one thing that I was thinking just real quick is it is possible. And I know that this is going to really upset some people, so get ready. Uh, it's possible that the policy uh, things that we have done through the Fed and the government have maybe enabled us to swallow a, a greater slack this time around than the financial crisis because the financial markets aren't going to lock up. And in March, like that was a legit risk. And I, I think that we were way fragile in March and maybe aren't as fragile now, but you know, we'll see in a year. Okay. Or five. Right. So, so one idea that I had about 
kind of the economy and sort of how we operate, given that like we should allow for some slack. I think we should really do everything we can to probably destigmatize actually bankruptcy and also unemployment and and do what we can to help people to transition to change into the going into real actually building the structures of production that will create all the things that we want right like as consumers so to to reduce some of the friction in the whole system of being able to transition people from one thing to another whether it's an entrepreneur who's looking to build things or the employees who are coming along to help them um i think you know whether that means like more job training or um you know even more lenient bankruptcy laws like let's Let's have things die in competition and let's get you right back into the game. Um, so another, uh, an interesting quote, and this is from James Watson, who was the co-discoverer of DNA with uh, Francis Crick. He says that it's necessary to be slightly underemployed if you're to do something significant. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's, that's really another form of slack. Like he had a lot of time to be working on these really big ideas. He had, he wasn't working a crazy schedule. I don't based on that, that comment. Um, so maybe this is an interesting argument for universal basic income. Uh, oh as, God, Jake, come on. Hey, let's expand our, our thinking a little bit and imagine. So here's one Jake of the, the arguments. Marxist. It. This is really, this is really taking a turn. Yeah, the, the character arc. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just imagine for a second, though, if what if we use that UBI with a little like a little bit more than just to like sit, not sit on the couch and watch more Netflix. But like what if people actually worked on building cool shit that we all wanted? They took that slack and they're you know, they're not commuting anymore. They're not killing themselves for 60 hours a week jobs. And they were working on things that were actually like maybe would move the needle in a bigger way i find that to be an interesting idea oh, man, we're gonna have to tag aoc in this google kind of did that right google used to have that you could use one day of the week like fridays 20 percent of your time yeah. you're allowed to go and work on other projects and then they killed that uh right at about the time they killed the don't be evil thing so i wonder what they discovered <laughs> uh yeah i don't know that's a good question i'm sure we have some some friends at google who could tell us the answers um so let's talk a, a little bit about uh, like Slack when it comes to your personality. And, you know, ev this like Jordan documentary is everyone is all rah rah about it. And, and granted, like I thought it was fa fascinating and very interesting. But, like, I mean, Jordan was obviously very hard to get along with um, and very exacting and demanding. I, there's a. I think about this, like the 20th century uh, theoretical physicist named Paul Dirac, who was apparently just as smart as any of the other guys, but was really hard to talk to, really prickly and like kind of a pain in the ass. And then you contrast that with someone like Richard Feynman, who everyone loves. And it's because he had this more of a slack in his personality to find new things to like he was, you know, always like playing the bongos, drawing, you know, women in strip clubs uh doing like all this crazy stuff you know lock picking long rick <laughs> he probably would have been um he you know he's a pretty good artist like he had all of these different places in slack in his personality compared to Dirac, who was like you know no nonsense a pain to talk to um you know like who do you who would you rather hang around with who would you rather have lunch with like everyone would say Feynman, and yet they both got a lot, you know, they got things done. Um, I find that interesting. Like maybe we could all use a little bit more playfulness in our in our approaches. 
This is why I don't think people should ask Buffett and Munger for life advice. Mm. Okay, you want to be Buffett? Go be Buffett. I bet you end up unhappy. Like it is a unique personality that lives that life and gets that outcome. And if you're wondering how to raise your children and have a happy wife, that dude isn't the guy to ask. That's fair. Speaking of Berkshire, I think another point would be uh, so there's almost like a group selection kind of evolution thing happening at Berkshire where Buffett's calendar, you look at it, and I bet it's like mostly empty. And there's a lot of slack in his where you know his calendar versus the people below him. I bet Abel's got a 60-hour-a-week calendar, and I bet all the other CEOs do as well. So you have this like kind of intense competition at one level, and then slack up at another level that can help process and maybe find that, you know, evolve that eye, if you will, from the the biological example. Yeah, I love so, that idea that there's um, you need the you need the competition to force the evolution but if the competition is too intense then nobody can spare the energy to make that evolution that's really fascinating i've never heard that idea before the, so you need some slack in that system in order to it doesn't that sort of fly in the face so there's that guns germs and steel article where they say that there's a reason that there's this tiny little island that was covered or you know tiny little areas that were covered with lots of people who had to fight each other all the time and so they had to develop better weapons and they all got immunity and that was sort of part of the reason why they were then able to go and colonize the rest of the world i i don't think it was the weapons so much at least for the the immunity part it was they they lived with livestock close and like livestock they swapped germs back and forth with the livestock over and over and developed immunity and then took it over to a place where they didn't have that immunity and then but that's a separate idea there are three ideas there right guns germs and steel and steel being technology but the guns is if you're if you're at war with somebody if you can come up with a better weapon then you probably you're going to win that war probably yeah so there's a there's an interesting example of like i don't know if you guys ever played civilization uh but there's kind of two strategies there. There's the, they call it like a, the ax rush is one strategy. So you just like as fast as you can try to get to have the technology of the ax. Uh, and then you just go chop up all of your competitors and, uh, you know, win the day. Then there's another, yeah. Like the, that. Well, then the other strategy would be called build. And that's, it's more of the kind of, uh, you know, you're going to just like keep working on your technologies, building it. And eventually if you can, if you're not, uh, under pressure from the people who are chasing the axe, if they're not subject to the competition, you can get to the point where you're so much better that like you can just go defeat them at, at your leisure, right? Because you're so much more advanced. So two strategies, and they, a lot of them have to do with how much competition versus slack do you have. And a lot of that can be geography-based, like how hard is it, how isolated are you to kind of build versus having to go fight and chop right away. I used to play Magic the Gathering. Shout out to the Magic nerds. Uh, and that was like different deck strategies. Do you attack quickly or do you have like something that has more power in it? Mm -hmm. I just like Magic uh, nostalgia. <laughs> I wonder why I never touched a boob for a long time. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Uh, all right, so magic, I'm done. Magic in a forward that had a uh, purple shaft. I didn't stand a chance for a while. No. Oh, well. <laughs> It worked out. Three little boys. The, Bur the Brewster nerds will live on. Uh, I have taken this the wrong way. 
Well, I think it's time for some Q&A, unless you got any Toby. You, shit, you know, Yeah, shit some questions through. I saw some earlier that uh, were good and I just couldn't grab them. So, uh, shit them in. There was one, uh, Kevin's at local. I saw you had a good one. The only Slack hey, thing Kevin. that I think is, uh, like, I don't know. I, I know that I defend them a lot. But, like, the airlines, I I think other than American, which is why I am so mad at them, because they gave the whole thing a black eye. But I think that there was a lot of slack there. I just think that this particular event was one that, like, capitalism is not set up for, uh, at least the way that we do it. And I don't know that you would want – well, I I don't think you would want to live in a world where we set up for this kind of event and built that much slack in the system by design. Uh, I think that the benefits of how we have set things up generally exceed the cost but i don't disagree with you that maybe we pushed it too far yeah i mean if i wanted to eliminate like like if i really wanted to build like a more uh sustainable system i'd eliminate stuff like limited liability uh because i think that incentivizes a ton of risk seeking but i also think there's a lot of benefits from that so so i got a question uh ratios versus dcf uh, I have a preference for uh, not so much ratios as uh, expectations investing. I just think you can see some things, and you, it's the same. It's the same process, right? Ratios, multiples, expectations. You can see um, where there's a divergence. Whereas I think the DCF is asking you to get two things right. You got to get the discount rate right, and you got to get the growth rate right. I think it, that gets hard, and I I, I don't know. So. If, for now and for the last decade, the discount rate's been a really hard question. Like, do you assume normalization? Do you assume that it stays where it is? I, you wouldn't I, have bought anything then. Well, yeah, well, I don't know the answer to that question. I, and I, I, I've read a lot of smart guys who don't know the answer either. There's a great piece by James Montier where he talks about the age of financial repression where he talks about making exactly that bet. I don't know the answer. So I just prefer to ignore that part of the equation. Think about the... Um, Think about the uh, ratio where it is. Think about the expectation where it is. Not worry too much about what the correct discount rate is. Sometimes you're going to be right. Sometimes you're going to be wrong. I think that on an, on balance, the other things that you get in that uh, outweigh it. But you know, horses for courses. I think uh, like if you are a newer investor, and I I think you know if you're seasoned, then you figure out your own process, but. If you're newer, I would really encourage doing a DCF to force yourself to think through, okay, do I think that they're going to get working capital efficiency and why? And and like it, it forces or has forced me in the past to really think through what levers a business can pull, where are they in sort of their cash flow cycle, is inventory bloated, is it not, you know, like, like questions like that that I think a multiple – uh, at least with my personality type, I can get lazy and, and skip really important questions. So I don't think that you should get a, a DC, do a DCF, see some pinpoint estimate and be like, oh, that's the value of the company. I think that is insane. But I do think that there's a lot of merit in thinking through the drivers of a DCF. I got a super chat from Jonathan Wallace. Thanks, Jonathan. This is a $2 question. Insight on EV EBIT adjusted for market debt value. Um, I don't know that I've looked at the market 
on an EV EBIT basis, but we certainly looked at the value decile in, I looked at the value decile in that um, paper that I wrote a few weeks back. Uh, well, he's saying adjust the debt to, par, to to the trading value, right? Rather than just assume it's all a par. Is oh, EV EBIT, sorry, is? you're right. In, For $2, you get a follow-up, sir. <laughs> make sure, a clarification. Make sure to, to clarify. Yeah. But I think that's what he's asking, right? If the bonds are trading at 80, do you adjust the debt to that? Yeah. And do your EV based on that? Yeah. If you can get that data, you should. Absolutely. The only odd thing about that is then you start doing the market cap and you're sort of at the whim of the market. I, I don't know. I would... I think it's probably better to just sort of do your own. Well, there are companies out there now buying back their debt in the uh, in the market at a discount. I like to see that kind of maneuver. Yeah, I guess my Strong. challenge my challenge to that would be, you think the equity market the market is wrong about its pricing, but you are implicitly assuming the debt market is right. Then, well, the debt market is available in the market at that time. So I'm, I'm assuming they can take advantage of it in, in much the same way that they can, and maybe that's wrong. I guess your obligation is still where it stands. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. Yeah, I mean, the it. problem is you do have to pay back 100 cents on the dollar, right? Like, like Unless no you buy it back. Is, yeah, but yeah, that's right. But like a debtor that's holding to maturity is not going to say, oh, your market price is quoted at this. We can just settle up and I'll take a loss. So, Well, they I, will, though, sometimes. No, I know, but I I think generally I would rather value the debt at a hundred cents on the dollar to be conservative rather than say, oh, this is cheap based on the total where the total things. You know, if you were to file bankruptcy, for instance, the judge is not going to be like, well, it was only twenty five cents on the dollar before you went into BK, right? So, <laughs> right. true. Do you think commission free trades rise of day trading has a material impact on prices? Like no, I think it has a material impact on investors' results, though, negatively. They, you know, look look at the Robin Hood traders. I tweeted this out. I kind of didn't really even follow the tweet because I took off for the weekend and didn't check my Twitter, but it, it got a lot of uh, action uh, that Robin Hood traders, and I don't know if this is like, basically, Robin Hood traders picked the bottom. They were like not in, in S, SPY uh, much until the bottom, and they've just exploded, and they bit it really hard. Uh, out of the bottom and so the, the everybody says well you know they've made lots of dumb trades robin hood traders are dumb i think i've been surprised at how either that i think that either robin hood traders are bag holders or they are value investors now i don't necessarily know that we can know at this point in the cycle i'm gonna insert the the spider-man pointing back and forth <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's fair the, the uh, I've got no. I, I think they've done pretty well. Like they've, I think they've bought a lot of bottoms, and and maybe it's only a short term bottom. Maybe it's going to be more. I don't know. But I, you know, you've got Some to pay the, the fact they did it. Some of the are kind of surprising too. They're like, I don't know. Like Ford is really high up, and obviously like the airlines. Cheap. I mean, some of these. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. You would think that it would have been all like Fang, Shopify. There's uh, a lot of that in there though. To be yeah. fair, what's hard to stay away from right now is Allegiant Spirit. And Southwest, it's very hard. Well, I had some I'm Southwest like and some Spirit, just Triple straight itching. Poo -poo platter. No, man. So Allegiant, they said that sixty percent of their customers intended to fly that before December thirty first. Royal Caribbean, I was listening to their call. Can't they have like twenty. With yeah, but I'm. But it's gonna come back. I mean, uh, Royal Caribbean, they said that like. They have 20 million, like, you know, hardcore cruisers or whatever. Almost 
like a substantial majority, I don't want to put out a percentage, but high, high majority are opting for a delayed cruise. I think you get 125% credit rather than getting your money back. Uh, I, I sort of somewhat intuitively to me from a health standpoint, boomers are opting to stay with their cruise and millennials are asking for cash back, uh, which I thought was interesting. But I just think I think leisure is going to come back a lot faster than other people do. I, I think Americans don't care and they're going to start looking at the data and the young ones are going to say, I really don't have that big of a risk. YOLO. What about using the 10 year? Sorry. This, so this is just going back to what we were talking about. What about using the 10-year treasury rate as the assumed terminal growth rate? Damn it, Darren does that. Yeah, that's that's fine. You can use whatever you want. The issue is whether that if you're using a sub-normal, sub-natural rate and the rate mean reverts back to where it has been normally, now you've overpaid for those things. That's that's the exact question that we're trying to wrestle with here. Not 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 what actual rate you stick in but whether you assume that that rate stays where it is or whether that mean reverts. And that's been the whole thing that everybody's been wrestling with for the last decade. And to the extent that you've assumed a lower rate, you've done better. If you've assumed mean reversion, you've, you haven't been able to bid up for these things. So Damodaran's been right, yeah. Just I personally think these are like way too academic for a practitioner. I mean, I think that... Well, it defects uh, your valuation. You think that's academic? For sure. If you're doing a DCF... But I don't put that much effort, like, I don't put that much faith in my valuation. I mean, really, when push comes to shove, if I can get my head around an idea, I look at my entry free cash flow yield, plus or minus whatever additional debt I think could be recapped to equity, plus or minus whatever working capital is going to be taken out of the business, and plus or minus some multiple fade. And you're going to say, well, how do you get to a multiple fade without knowing what your long-term growth rate is? I mean, I sort of try to figure out something that I think is pretty reasonable and lay the bet accordingly. Like, I'm not worried about the precision of the price uh, because I think that that's a great way to get lost in a model for me and forget everything that matters. Because I, I think Excel, you can you can lose a shit ton of time and all that time could be much better spent on competitive position, business franchise growth, like value, uh, analyzing CEO comp, that stuff to me matters a lot more than whether or not my long-term discount rate's right. Because if the, if my long-term discount rate is off, the whole market is screwed. Like, I, I mean, I guess I can play some game where I'm smarter than the market on discount rates. I don't have any competence in that game. So what does that mean? So, you use the one that you just use whatever's prevailing and you don't worry. You, so you don't assume mean reversion. I, no, I try to make bets that I understand when I when I see them. Like when I bought a small slug of Visa, it was trading at like, I don't know, 24 times trailing, right? So my big risk, I think, in that is spending comes de- like big time in and uh, the long-term growth rate is impaired. But like if you're paying 24 times for Visa, I mean, you're going to tell me a world where Visa is a 15 times earning stock? Like fine, then everything else is going to be four, <laughs> I mean, that's an that's an exaggeration, but I don't think you get hit that hard on a company like that if you're going in at what appears to be a reasonable historic valuation. That's more how my mind works. Now, you know, if the business deteriorates, I'm fucked, right? I mean, to our point earlier, like, I have a lot of terminal value risk in that asset, but uh, at least I know it. I mean, you're getting a little bit of that by fading the Pete, your, your multiple... That's sort of one way of like introducing a maybe a little bit higher discount rate, 
right? Like everyone assumes like we're just not going to pay as much for the multiple out in the future. Like Nigren says that he has everything at basically a market multiple as, as his terminal value. I don't know that I agree with that. Um, shout out to Bill. I know you're looking to me for advice. but um, You're on the you Bill know, Slack. I, Everybody called Bill has their own Slack. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. I just I I don't know that I would worry too much about for me trying to out, you know, maneuver the market on what the long-term discount rate is. I I think that is time spent better places. So what's the hack? What are you doing? Well, so like on Visa, I think that I'm probably going to be able to sell that for north of 20 times. So you're right? just assuming so, that disc, that the the multiple doesn't change over the course that you own it. I am trying to buy like that asset. I was not comfortable paying north of 30 because if you're going to sell it at 20 and you hold it for 10 years, that's, you know, what? I mean, roughly 5% a year. I mean, that's not nothing. Uh, but 24 to 20 over a 10 year holding period, that's not the end of the world to me, especially for that asset. I mean, so. So I got a good question here. Uh, I don't know what the answer to this one is, but it's a good question. Can you discuss stock-based compensa compensation in terms of being a non-cash but also a real business cost? Don't add back to FCF. Important to consider their dilutive potential? Question mark. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I hate seeing lots of share-based compensation. No, 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 I don't hate seeing lots of it. I hate seeing it material to uh, you know, like when it's ten or twenty percent of what they're of what they're generating in revenue. Like that's. You're having a laugh at that stage. It's a scam. I think that's something like, uh, I hate naming names, but Snap is ridiculous. The amount of stock-based compensation relative to the amount of money that they make. It's just a clever kind of accounting trick to hide what is a real cost borne by the owners, even if it's not necessarily reflected in the results of the company. So I, I don't adjust anything for it but I don't like seeing lots of it. And on the other hand, I do like seeing lots of buybacks. So it's just a, I just use it included as a factor that I consider not necessarily as something that needs to result in an adjustment. How do you guys deal with it? I don't know. I'm sitting here bothered about my mental math and I hate doing math in my mind on the podcast because I'm always wrong. So please forgive me. Uh, Share-based compensation, how I think about it is it's basically dilution. So like for a growth company, I'm okay with that. Uh, you know, like, like I do understand these earlier companies, uh, do sometimes need to depend somewhat on the, on the benevolence of their employees to fund some free cash flow uh, shortages. So I, I do think that you are somewhat dependent on that. I get a little frustrated when I look at a company that issues a bunch of shares and then buys back the shares to offset the dilution and everybody cites the free cash flow without looking at the bought back shares like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me if you're you know spending three billion on share dilution and then spending three billion to reduce that that seems like an operating expense to me a lot more than a, a capital allocation decision um especially for mature businesses so. What, why is a mature business issuing so much stock though? That's my that's that's my question. Like you're you're saying it's it's fair enough when they're early on. Well, like but why are they Google. listed in doing that? Look, I mean, look at what Google does. They, I, I, th I don't mind having employees that are bought into a vision. I would much prefer for that shares or those shares to probably go to like mid-level managers than they go to top management. And that's not how it works in reality. But um, 
Well, here's the crazy I, thing. I don't know. Most like, employees what? prefer cash to, to shares. That's what the that's what the studies say. Yeah. I was shocked when I saw that because I would have thought yeah, it was the other way around. That's interesting. Well, think about it from their point of view. Of, you know, you can your current income is based on this company, and if you're keeping all of your shares, like a big part of your kind of future net worth is also based on this company. Like you start to get pretty heavy. You could see why they they tend to dump them as soon as they get them and try to diversify out of it. It's not illogical. Yeah, I, I think it's more a problem that it's kind of a lottery ticket. Like you don't know if it's you can you can work really hard and get a big slug of these things and it could be worth nothing. And then it's Enron. Yeah, or, or it just doesn't for whatever reason you just go through an air pocket. And so there are some guys who get there and they get a really good run, and there are some guys who get there a bit later and get a really bad run, or vice versa. And it's not anything to do with your output. It's all to do with like what the share price does and who knows what that's going to do in the short term. Something I thought was pretty interesting uh, when I was at, at BMO, like the share price really drove, uh, I mean, not like people wouldn't not go to work if it was down, but like people would bitch <laughs> about it, you know, like they, like it really does drive morale to a certain extent. Uh, you know, and like there were there were certain times when it would just sort of like languish and people would be like, oh, fucking stop, you know, like under their breath or whatever. So it's it's interesting. Uh, I'm not so sure about having that as a barometer that's like yeah. always around. <laughs> I, uh, last question and then we're going to declare time. Was AWS luck or skill? Uh, probably a little bit of luck. Well, a lot of bit of luck and a lot of bit of skill. I mean, the, the more you practice, the luckier you get, right? And like, they're fucking smart. Uh, so they figured it out and then they figured out how to apply it to other people. I don't think anyone thought it was going to be what it was going to be, but I mean, that's sort of one of the embedded options that some great management teams create. So, uh, it's clearly not as, as, uh, certain as it looks in hindsight. Yeah. A little bit of extra slack to throw more spaghetti against the wall and, uh, you know, you, you evolve an eye, right? <laughs> Well, the interesting thing, yes, first of all, certainly. And then you think about like today, Google has taken a lot of heat for other bets. Um, you know, do they not have enough leeway from their shareholders? Have their shareholders put up with enough? I mean, one of the things that I think is I have a buddy who may or may not take a company public. I don't know, but I'm trying to like talk to him about if you do this from day one, like set the set your IR communications up correctly and tell the street the same message from the beginning and have it be long, you know, give yourself the ability to, to build an enduring organization by treating shareholders like long-term owners. And Bezos allowed himself to have that kind of slack. Same with Hastings. Like a lot of Netflix's success is people's faith in Reed. Tesla, the whole fucking reason that company's still around is because of Elon Musk, even if you think he's a nut. Reed sells a lot of stock. Yeah, Netflix is worth a lot of money though. Less than it's trading at. Oh, go on to Netflix. Suck it, Netflix. (laughs) I would be curious to see more companies listing on this uh, long-term stock exchange idea. I don't know if you guys have seen that before. Yeah, it's called the NASDAQ. No, it's not. It could be. It could be. That's going to turn into the same thing everything else will, please. People are morons. Um, That's the point of this. Oh, the interesting Netflix thing. Uh, you got to look at their U.S. subgrowth. It was not quite as good as you might think in the middle of a pandemic if you were a bull and you thought that they would peak at 90 million households. 
Twitter unleash on me. <laughs> and on that note, thanks very much, everybody. We'll be back same bat time, same bat channel next week. Peace.